title is The Best Day of Your Life. It took me a while to figure out why that had such a clever ring. That's a title of a song from I don't know when, I don't know who sang it, but those were the best days of your life, right? Are y'all looking at me crazy? Well, maybe you're better off that way, Sean. (laughs) I want you to think for a minute. What was your favorite day of the year growing up? Some of you are still growing up. Some of us are still growing up too, but your favorite day of the year. Some people would say my birthday. Some people would say Christmas day. Some people would say the last day of school. Some would say the first day of school. For me, it's Christmas Eve. You see, Christmas Eve was so exciting because Christmas Day was coming. We would prepare all day, getting the house ready and cooking and eating cookies and family members would get picked up at the train station and pull into the driveway and we'd get their bedroom ready and, and you just get so excited and it was just a wonderful day. Christmas Day wasn't my favorite day because Christmas Day, the gifts never quite satisfied like you thought they would. The cousins were fun, but within a few hours, they kind of got on your nerves. And the relatives were so happy to see you until afternoon, and then they just wanted you to get away and be quiet. And then at the end of the day, the house was a mess. My parents were frazzled. Everybody left. It was really depressing. And inevitably, my dad would say, clean it up. And these big black garbage bags would come out, and we'd be handed them, and we'd just start throwing trash in the garbage. And you'd go to bed, and you'd think, ugh. But Christmas Eve had so much potential and so much hope, and that is my favorite day growing up. Well, today, I want to close at the end of the sermon by asking you that question again. Not what is or what was, but what should be your favorite day of the year as a child of God? We're going to get to that by looking at Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Through 22. And I will read that, I'll put it in context, and then we'll begin to unpack it verse by verse. The word of the Lord reads, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, him obviously being Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now you obviously see how I'm tying in the best day, right? It's just so clear. No, bear with me. This passage in its most basic form is telling us about the incompatibility of the gospel with any other world religion. Now, growing up Jewish and coming to faith in Christ later on, one of the things that drives me batty is you'll see some, some Christian people really, really excited about Jewish stuff. You know, it's like, oh, I love Jewish tradition. Please don't say that to me. You know why? Jewish tradition leads people to hell. If it's just tradition. 
you might as well be a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist if you're a Jew without Jesus. Jesus is saying the gospel is incompatible with Judaism without Jesus. That's the clear principle that's being taught here, and thus every other world religion. But it's so much deeper and more robust what we see here as we begin to unpack the text, as he explains that. So it starts out with an accusation, a critical accusation in the first verse. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's a good question, right? But before we get to the question, look at who asked the question. Now we know that this is sequential in order of what we read before. Jesus called Levi, they went to a feast, right? And this happens right after. Now, if you're astute, you should be thinking in your head, well, how do you know that? And the reason I say that is, if you look at the three accounts in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have this event in sequential order here. That tells us something. But more so, Luke 5.33, he starts this narrative with the word they. So in order to know who the they is, you have to back up at least a verse, and you see that they are the same people from the previous story. So this is a continual sequential narrative we're looking at. And the they who are asking the questions here are John's disciples and the Pharisees. Now most people think John's disciples became followers of Christ, right? Isn't that what happened? They went out in the wilderness, he baptized them, and then they went and followed Jesus. But see, not so much. When Jesus came back, when he rose... And his disciples were gathered together. Do you remember how many were there? 120? Well, how many people went out to the wilderness with John the Baptist? We read about that in Mark 1.5. It says, And all the country, get that, all, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now that might not literally mean every single person, but it means a whole lot of the people. Only 120 hanging out at the end. So what happened here that John the Baptist's disciples didn't become followers of Jesus and came with an accusing question? Well, what happened was John was preaching repentance and preparing for the coming of the Messiah. These people didn't struggle with a need, uh, didn't struggle with needing to know they needed to repent. They struggled with knowing what repentance was and who Messiah was. So, if you're getting ready for the Messiah you want, who's going to forgive you in the way you want to forgive, you want to get real religious, right? You know most of those people that show up at church on Christmas and Easter, it's because they want to get a little religious in, because that impresses God. If you go to church, if you pray, if you give alms, and if you fast, God is like, dude, I'm impressed. So these guys thought, John the Baptist's followers... Let's hang out with the most religious people we could find, the holiest folk we know. And who do you hang out with if you're looking for holy folk? Pharisees. These people, they are, they are righteous in their own eyes. They are super holy according to themselves. They are pure of heart, so they think. So John's, the disciples, they were all getting ready. They're getting ready for Messiah, and we're going to get ready for Messiah. Let's clean our act up. Let's look good. Let's get all religious here. We should be fasting. The concept of fasting is so messed up in our context that I'm really excited this passage isn't about fasting. I don't have to deal with that today. But I remember in in seminary, one day someone came up to me and sat down in the library and we were talking, yeah, I'm fasting today. 
And I just thought, wait a minute, you just wasted your whole day. Because once you told me, you just did, something's off there. I'm thinking, no, I'm missing something there. Fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Do you have to fast? Old Testament, are there any required fasts? The answer is yes, if you want to look good. Are there any required fasts? Good job, Patty. How many are there? One. Whoa. Do you know what it is? There you go. Yom Kippur. Leviticus tells us about that. Leviticus 16, 29 through 31. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall clean before the Lord. I'm sorry. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict yourselves in a statute forever. The word afflict yourself, it comes from the Hebrew word anah, which means to fast. That is the only required fast in the Old Testament. Yom Kippur, one day a year. Well, why are they getting all worked up? Why don't your disciples fast? Well, see, here's what had happened. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll see lots of examples of fasting. Esther 4, Isaiah 58, Joel 1, one day fast, three day fast, seven day fast, 21 day fast, 40 day fast. There's a lot of fasting that goes on. They're not required by the law, but they're motivated by grief and sorrow. They're from the heart. The people just can't eat because they're so distraught. Well, the Pharisees, these were religious guys. So what do you do if you're a good religious guy? You get all legalistic and you mandate a fast two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays. You say, you're making that up, aren't you? I'm not making that up. How do you know you're not making that up? Why am I talking to myself in a question and answer format? I know I'm not making it up because I read Luke 18. Verse 9, there's a parable. And it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Didn't we just talk about tax collector? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now watch this in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The the Pharisees, the rabbinic teachers, they decided to take a gift from God, a fast, and turn it into a legalistic burden. Monday and Thursday, you will fast. And God will only love you if you fast two days a week. So John the Baptist's disciples said, well, let's get into fasting. But Jesus and his disciples, these guys were the most ungodly folks you'd ever meet. They didn't fast. How can you not fast? So they come and they say, how can you not fast? And Jesus responds. Now, if you read Matthew 6, Jesus responds in the broader context. If you remember, the the three things the Pharisees were good at were almsgiving, public prayer, and fasting. So they would show up in the temple and they'd give their tithe and they'd have someone blowing a trumpet. We're going to start that practice in the new year. Whenever anyone's going to give an offering, Robert Byerly. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And then they'd pray in public, the for show prayers, you know, or the long-winded ones that are more of a production. And then they were fasting twice a week. And Jesus spoke to all these things. Basically said, y'all are going to hell with that attitude. It's not that it's wrong to do any of those things, but if it's coming from a wrong heart, it's pointless. 
So Jesus responds to the accusation. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they'll fast on that day. What's he talking about? He's saying there's a party going on right here. A celebration to last throughout the year. (laughs) Jesus had just been at Levi's house for a feast. Now I suspect, and this is pure speculation, but knowing my Lord and how he would kind of razz these Pharisees, it had to be a fast day. It had to be a Monday or a Thursday, because he was just going to zing them with it, right? So on a Thursday, he thought, I'll hang out with a bunch of sinners, and we, we won't fast. We're going to have a feast. We're going to add the E. You see that? And it's driving these legalistic Pharisees crazy. Wow, look at these guys are hanging with sinners, and they're eating on a fast day. And Jesus says, hold on a minute. You all don't understand what's going on. Today is not a day to fast. Today is a day to feast because the bridegroom is here. The bride, well, like, what are you, what are you? Now they know what he's talking about from Old Testament imagery about God. Jesus is equating himself with God here. These cats were not dumb. He's, he's razzing them here. He says, the bridegroom will be taken away. The word is apero. It means a sudden taking away. And when he said that, Isaiah 53, 8 would come to mind. And Isaiah 53, 8 reads, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Well, when Jesus was taken away, when he died, he says, then they'll fast. They want to see something kind of interesting. Luke 24, road to Emmaus. Jesus goes down the road, reveals himself to these guys at the end when he gets to their house. Do you remember what happened when he got to their house? Who fed who? Jesus fed them. He walked into their house, took their food and their utensils and fed them. Do you know why I think he fed them? Because they were fasting. Why were they fasting? Because they were so grief-stricken. You ever have a horrible event happen in your life and you just can't eat? Just like, I have no appetite. I don't want to see food. Oh, you're just grieving inside. Well, The one they thought was Messiah had died. They couldn't eat. They they were grief-stricken. They were fasting. Jesus broke the fast, it appears. Or when he goes back in at the end of the chapter and the the disciples are all gathered, he says to them, don't you have anything to eat here? They couldn't eat. They were fasting. They were grief-stricken. So he began to eat again. Jesus' point to these legalistic guys is... Your fast is pointless. Now's the time to feast. The bridegroom has come to take a bride, and you're sitting here fasting twice a week to try to impress me with your self-righteousness? The problem was Jesus preached grace. The Pharisees were into self-righteousness. Jesus preached repentance of sin. The Pharisees denied they were sinful. Jesus preached humility. They were proud of their religiosity. Jesus offered the new. They held tightly to the old. Jesus offered a relationship. They held fast to ritual. They hated Jesus because he undermined their legalistic, ritualistic structure. The nerve of him, he didn't fast. And then he shares an analogy. Two analogies. There are actually three you'll see in a moment. The first one I know really well about, verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. If you ever have laundry, don't bring it to my house. My wife will tell you. 
Because I am firmly convinced that there is only a need for one setting on a washing machine, warm, heavy duty. But if you put a, a cotton or wool sweater that says dry clean only, that actually means something, into the washing machine, warm, heavy duty, that sucker comes out as a mandatory hand-me-down right off the bat. Did you know that? I can go from me to Charlie in one wash, I think. And that's Jesus' point. If you were to take, the, we wear a lot of synthetic fabric today. You know, it's not 100% cotton, so you can wash it warm and heavy duty and dry it, and it's, just, it's wrinkly and soft, but it still fits. Well, they didn't have synthetic fabric back then, so if you wash something, it shrank. Well, you wouldn't take a new garment and patch it onto an old, because then when it shrank, it tears it. And Jesus' point isn't careful with doing the wash. His point is, you can't patch something up with the gospel. He says, I didn't come to take your mess and become a patch to it. I came to replace it. He goes on with another illustration. I had to read a little bit about this one to understand it, as I've never done it at home, but I'm intrigued now, and if you have a spare goat, let me know. It says, no one sews, well, no, it says the next one. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but the new, new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what would they do? When they'd make wine, they'd take an animal, like a goat, and they'd kill it, take the skin off, sew up the little leg holes, turn the neck into a funnel, and they put the grape juice in to ferment. And when something ferments, there's an expansion that takes place. When it expands, a subtle, subtle, sup, suppital. How do you say that word? Suppital. The suppital animal skin, move on, would stretch, and then you'd pour it into another animal skin, and the new suppital animal skin would stretch, and they would become old skins, but they had to be new to stretch. Well, his point is, if you pour the wine into an old skin, when the stretching expansion takes place, that sucker tears and you lose the wine. He says, Judaism or any other religion cannot contain the gospel. They are incompatible together. Now, what do we do with all this? You're like, Pastor, that was a whole lot of stuff. I already knew that. Good reminder. But what do we do with this? Well, be reminded the Lord has it there for a purpose. But look at this. First, understand what Jesus is saying is he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, right? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. What he came to abolish were ritualistic, legalistic practices. And there is a part of us that falls into that, trying to impress God by the doing, right? Well, if I fast, God's going to be impressed. So if I want to pray for something and I decide to fast, well, God be like, oh, well, you know, well, you fasted, I'll give you the extra credit and then we'll do it because of your fast. Do you know that doesn't work? God's not like impressed with your fasting so that whatever you're praying, he's like, yeah, I'll give you the five bonus points for the fast and we'll pull this one off. Angels, make it happen. No, that's not what fasting is. Fasting is more of an exclamation point at the end of a prayer. So say you are grieving over the fact that someone is lost and will not hear the gospel. They're not receptive to the gospel. And you come before the Lord. You say, Lord, I pray for so and so that they would come to saving faith. I'm so grieved by it. Lord, please. And you're so grieved you literally can't eat. The fasting that should take place, there's an exclamation point at the end of the prayer. It's not to impress God. It's from a contrite and humble heart that grieves sin and is dependent on God. Do you see that? But this isn't about fasting. This is about something far more wonderful. The first thing is, it's about the fact that the gospel is a standalone. Every other world religion, every other belief system is a hellbound train. 
You can't add a little bit of Jesus into a little bit of Buddha or a little bit of Jesus into a little bit of Islam. Or It's all Jesus or nothing. He says that. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It's Jesus or bust. But for those of us who know Christ, there's a reminder here. And look at this. If you go to Luke chapter 5, this is a parallel account. And Luke records one more illustration that I want to use here for our closing, because it's so wonderful. Luke 5, 33. I'm sorry, we go down to 39 for the illustration. It says, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, The old is good. That's a frightening, frightening proposition. What is he saying? If you sip on the false religions that the world has to offer... The longer you sip, the less likely you are to receive the gospel. You've been drinking lies for 50, 60, 70 years. The gospel is hard to swallow. But if you're introduced the gospel from birth and fed on that, it's a little easier to take. Well, the Pharisees were struggling because Jesus was coming to take the entire system that they had constructed and kick the bottom out. And John's disciples had fallen into the same structure. But there's a positive side to what's being said there in Luke. And the positive side is, the new is better. The new saves. The new is what you were meant to drink. But to have the new, you have to get rid of the old. Fasting doesn't impress God. This text isn't about fasting. I think this text is about verse 19. And if you look there at verse 19, Jesus says, watch this. He said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Do you know what that means, Jesus is a bridegroom? We look at marriage in our context, and it's a mess, isn't it? It is just an absolute, total mess. But God gave us marriage as a living illustration of our relationship to him. Did you know that? It's a living illustration of a God who desired to be a husband to a wife, a bridegroom to a bride. Now, I don't like that imagery as a man, but I'm not going to question the imagery the Lord wants to use, all right? He delighted to come and propose to the world to see who would accept his proposal, his proposition. Acceptance is heaven, decline it is hell. He delights in bringing people to himself and becoming wed to them. What is marriage? Marriage is a covenantal relationship. It's exclusive and unconditional. It's two people giving themselves fully and completely to one another based on love and duty. That's what marriage is supposed to be, and that's what relationship with God is. Love and duty. I'm married to my wife, and we don't function either just on love or either just on duty. Just duty is like this. Happy anniversary, there's your card. Had to do that. That's not received well. Brought you some flowers, sweetie, because I know you're supposed to do things like that. There you go. Very few wives are just like, oh, this is so wonderful. Now turn around the other way, just like, oh, I so love you. Now can you go make me food? No, that doesn't work either. 
It's love and duty wed together. I delight in buying flowers for my wife because I love her and I know it brings her joy. I don't do it because I have to, but because I love her, I want to. Do you see that? I, I do based on the love and I love shown by the do. Now that relationship with Jesus. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, doesn't he? Love and duty, but the love and the duty reciprocate right back to us. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're so warm and cuddly. No, his love for us is so great that he died for us on the cross. He came down from heaven to live in the filth for us. Now watch this. Jesus died, but he arose. And when he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. He tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now watch this. When Laura and I were engaged, we came up to the day before our wedding. That was a good day. That was an exciting day. I had friends come in from all over the country. We had a lot of fun that day. We, we went going, this is, we went putt-putt and golfing and go-karting and all sorts. We had a great time, but what was fun about the day was the day to come. On that next day, I was going to be married to my fiance at the time who would be my wife and we could begin our life together forever. And since then, it's better than it was, but I got to look forward in anticipation to the great wedding day. Now watch this. What's your favorite day now? I'm going to contend that if you're a follower of Christ, your favorite day should be today. And tomorrow, still today. And the next day, still today. And here's why. The Lord is a bridegroom. He is preparing a great wedding feast. He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And while it's better for me in an earthly sense, being married than engaged with the Lord Jesus Christ, it far surpasses. I loved Christmas Eve because there was so much promise, but it was such a letdown on Christmas Day. But the Lord says, in part, now is a time to feast. Because there's a wedding that's going to take place. And it far surpasses anything you can comprehend. So when life kind of stinks, when people have to make a trip to be with a relative who's going to die, when people disappoint you, when people let you down, when life doesn't go how you want, rejoice in the fact that the Lord Jesus is in control and he is your bridegroom by grace through faith. And you can rejoice because he knows what he's doing and he's preparing you for eternity with him. Do you see that? Christmas was always a letdown, but eternity will not be a letdown. So today is a day to feast. Now, is a fast for today? Yes. You can read through Acts and you will see believers fast. And fasting is important, but we're not getting into fasting right here. What I want you to get is that this is a time of feasting. And we get to go into a lost world. We don't have to. We don't. You know what? You don't dare. Fast on Yom Kippur like the Jews fasted. Do you know why? Their fast was designed to be from the Lord, a grieving of sin, but a forward looking to forgiveness that would come. That is why they slaughtered and sacrificed on that day. And that is why they sent a scapegoat out into the wilderness. And they didn't eat so that they could grieve their sin. But there was still a rejoicing aspect to that. Do you know what we call Yom Kippur, my friends? We call it Easter. The sacrifice has been made, and we can grieve sin. We should grieve sin. We should fast at times over grief. But we are a people who feast and rejoice because Messiah has come and sin is forgiven. 
The gospel is simply this. Jesus came to take a bride for himself. He proposed to all and they must choose to accept or reject. It's heaven or it's hell. There's no other option. So John's disciples and the Pharisees said, why aren't you guys fasting? I just gave you a very long answer of what Jesus said quite simply right here. They're not fasting because I'm here with them. God himself, who you're trying to impress, the creator, redeemer, and sustainer, the one by whom and through whom all things were made, that's who you're looking at, folks. And I came because I love all of you. And I came to lay down my life as a ransom for many. And there's no need for you to fast to get right with me. You simply need to repent and believe. And for those who repent and believe, we get to look forward to the guaranteed eternal tomorrow, which will never let us down, but will surpass our wildest dreams. And the only way to enjoy it is by trusting in Christ alone and not trying to mix anything in with the all-satisfying and sufficient work of and the person of Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come before you in humble adoration. The bridegroom, Messiah, Lion of Judah, Prince of Peace, Alpha and Omega. Lord Jesus, I pray you would help us. Holy Spirit, please give us eyes to see and minds to understand the fullness of the depth and breadth and love and riches that are ours in Christ Jesus, the magnificent, all-powerful, sovereign, holy, just, mighty God who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to take for himself a harlot as a wife. Hmm. Lord Jesus, that you would choose us that you would covenantally bound yourself to us, that you would allow us not just to live in your presence, but to live in an intimate relationship with you. Holy Spirit, you dwell in us. Lord Jesus, you pray for us. Father God, you guide, protect, and provide for us. Let us rejoice in that reality. Let us live a life Worthy of the one who has called us, the bridegroom, Lord God, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be humble and contrite. Help us to fast in ways that are pleasing to you and at times that are appropriate. But help us to be a people who have the joy you call us to have. A joy that you say comes from abiding in you. A joy that you say should not be taken from you. A joy that is a barometer of the intimacy with which we walk with you. Not a happy, happy joy, joy. A real joy. A joy that comes from knowing we have a bridegroom who will return. We have a bridegroom who is preparing us for the wedding day. And we have an eternity in your presence, in an intimate, eternal, love-based relationship. Lord, protect us. Lord, guide us. Lord, allow us to play the role you call us to in this bride of Christ you call your church. 
so we might bring glory and honor to you for your name's sake. It is in your precious and holy name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.